The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 4, 35-41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Now, one of the most freeing truths of the gospel is that God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Now, I know that might sound simple, but the, but the implications of that statement um, are anything but simple. And the truth is that all Christians agree with the statement that God is great, so I don't have to be in control, but very few Christians actually believe it. What does it mean that God is great? It means that God is sovereign. It means that He is all-knowing and all-powerful and in complete control of all things in the world. And the Christian knows that while God is great, He's not just great and sovereign, He is also causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8 tells us. Think about that for a second. God is great. He is unstoppable. He is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful. And He is at work in the lives of those who love Him and those who will love them, making every single thing in their life, their good experiences, but more importantly, even their bad experiences, and He's working them together for their ultimate good. And what we've been learning... and seeing through this study in the book of Mark. This is one of the earliest eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus. Is that Jesus is that God who is great. Jesus is the Son of God. He is putting the greatness of God on display for us through the the veil of His human flesh. He... He is the greatness of God in the flesh. The greatness of God incarnated for us to understand it and for us to see it. And what has this message been that Jesus has been preaching and proclaiming? It's a message of repent, turn around, change directions, and believe in me. Put your trust in me. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am the king. I am the great one. I am the Son of God, and in my greatness, I am in control of all things, and you need to trust me. 
You need to put your faith in me. This has been the message of Jesus. I'm the king. I'm bringing the kingdom. Turn from your own kingdoms. Turn from your own way. Turn from your own things that you trust and put your trust in me. Now that message, think about it for a minute. That is a scary message. Jesus comes saying, I am God. I am the king. I am the great one. I am in control. You need to trust me with your life. Now, that's tough. When he says it to Peter, Peter, he says, basically, I want you, Peter, to leave your fishing business and come follow me. This family fishing business. And what does Peter do? Peter drops it and follows Jesus. Matthew, I want you to leave your tax collection business and come follow me. Mary, I want you to leave your life of sexual promiscuousness and come and follow me. Now, what I want us to see here is that Jesus, his message would have stirred up a lot of very common fears that we have as human beings, the fears in our hearts that his message of drop that, follow me, would stir up a lot of common fears. Peter, how, how am I going to pay my bills if I stop my fishing business and follow Jesus around in this three-year internship? I have a family to take care of. How am I going to provide for my family if I'm going to be following the Son of God around all day? How am I going to support my family? What will my lo- life look like if I give up the control that I have, or I think I have, of my life, what will my life look like if I give up the reins and give up the control to Jesus? Now, for us, in our day and age, I think we push back from this. We're scared of this. We're scared to encounter this kind of uh, teaching, this kind of man who would say things like, I am God, and you have to give up control of your life if you want to find it. So what do we do? We soften it. We soften the message of Jesus to just, okay, all he wants you to do is just say a prayer. And if you say a prayer, everything's good. That's not what Jesus does. Nowhere do we see Jesus softening up the requirements for those who want to follow him. He didn't cave in to people's fears. Oh, you're really worried about money? Okay, just pray this prayer. And you don't have to worry about that anymore. Just go on, life as usual. Matthew, Peter, go on. You want to be selfish the rest of your life? You want to spend all your money on you and yours? Okay, go ahead. Just pray the prayer and then you'll be a Christian and then you can do that too. We don't see Jesus doing that. One guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus says, come follow me. And he goes, hold on, I got to bury, bury my dad. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Come follow me. Whoa. Jesus doesn't soften the commands at all. He didn't say, I know you're scared, but I guess, you know, since you're so scared of community or you're just so scared of leaving everything behind and following me, you, here, here's the Bible, just go home and for the next three years, just you read the Bible. He doesn't say that. He says, come, follow me. Why? Why didn't Jesus do that? And another way to say it is, why doesn't Jesus allow us to kind of come to him on our own terms? or walk with him, or follow him on our own terms? Why has it got to be on his terms? Why did he push on people's fears so much? 
I think he did it because fear and faith operate on the same wavelength. Fear and faith operate on the same level. Here's what I mean. Faith says, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Jesus is the king who is reigning at the right hand of God, and therefore Jesus is in absolute control of everything in the world. No matter what my circumstances are telling me, I can trust Jesus because he's absolutely, powerfully in control of all things. That's what faith does. But now listen, fear operates on that same level. Fear says, I don't really know if God's all-powerful. Or I don't really, if God is all-powerful, I don't think he really cares about me. Fear says, I am on my own. Fear says, if I don't get to work, if I don't make it happen, then everything in my life will fall apart. Faith says, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Fear says, God isn't that great, so I have to continually be striving to bring more and more things under my control. Faith is a confident trust in Jesus that creates a restful heart with a hopeful expectation for the future. Fear is a lack of trust in Jesus that creates anxiety and worry, and workaholism. Fear is a belief that God might just be asleep on the job. Fear, see, works on the same wavelength as faith. It's interesting that when Jesus wants to build up people's faith, he takes them into a situation where they lose control. He takes them into a situation where their fears threaten to take over them. And that's what we're going to be studying today. It's a common story. It's a common um, story from the life of Jesus it's in all three synoptic gospels. And, I, and I was, as I was praying and as I was reading this, this might be the most important sermon I've preached so far in this series on Mark. For many of you, I think this sermon is going to make sense of something that you're currently experiencing. You're in the middle of it right now. You're walking through it right now. For others, I think it will make sense of something you've already been through. And for others, it's something that you're, it's right on the horizon. All right, what am I talking about? I'm talking about a storm. Listen to this right here. Let me just drop the bomb and we'll sit on it and we'll work through it. There is a type of, there is a false version, let me say it like that, of Christianity running wild in our society that says, come to Jesus and everything will be better for you. Come to Jesus and rainbows and roses and your life, in a sense it's this, come to Jesus, he'll make your life easier. And many people, if they embrace Jesus in that way, the first time something comes up in their life that's not easy, that's difficult, that's maybe even life-threatening, and guess, 
then we say, what is going on? What's happening, God? I'm doing this for you. I'm living this life. Why did my children get sick? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why is my business folding? What's going on, Jesus? You must not be in control. But what we're going to learn today is that, and hear me, Jesus' plan for your life includes life-threatening storms. Have you accounted for that? Because many of us, I'm just trying to find the will of God. And by that I mean I'm trying to find the easiest path life possible. I just really want it to go well for me. And in this story, we're learning, we're going to see that Jesus' plan includes life-threatening storms. They are absolutely pertinent for the life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus. Let's look at verse 35. Let's start there. Here we go. On that day, so this is one long day of ministry. We've been studying it over the last several weeks. He says, on that day, Jesus is exhausted. He's preached to thousands of people. He's performed miracles. He's done a lot of things. Jesus is absolutely exhausted. If you remember, he was pulled, he, he, the crowds were pressing in on him so much. He was such a popular teacher that he got into a boat. He went out into the Sea of Galilee, and then the, the water and the hillside kind of acts as a natural amphitheater where he can speak uh, without having to scream. He could speak in the water, and the, the, the sound waves reverberates off the water, and it makes this amphitheater, and thousands of people can hear him. So Jesus is out in the boat. He's pushed away from the crowds, and he's teaching the people. And it's been a long, hard, strenuous day. Verse 35, on that day, when evening had come, so he did this from morning till night, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side, okay? So listen, this is Jesus' plan. He says, let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus' idea. Jesus' plan, which we're about to see, includes storms. In a sense, how else could we build faith? The only way to build strength is to by put more and more weight on the bar. That's how you build strength. More and more resistance. Faith rises, what we're going to see, when fear tries to drown us. Jesus is leading his disciples into a situation to build their faith, a situation that actually creates faith. Look at verse 36. And leaving the crowd, once again, he pushes away from the crowd. He said to them, I'm sorry, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Now, that's a very weird sentence. Um, it's very weird in the original, uh, in the, in, well, in the Greek as well. And what it's talking about is this is a boat-to-boat transfer, okay? It's kind of weird. So Jesus is in one boat, and the disciples are in another boat, and they pull up just as he was, just as he was sitting in this other boat. And they, in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus gets out of his boat and gets into their boat with them. And look what happens. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, this storm, it's an, it's a, it's an awesome storm, okay? Um, these men were, some of these men were fishermen. They were experts on the Sea of Galilee. They were expert uh, sailors. So the fact that they, they're going to be freaking out in a moment just kind of proves to you, shows you how violent this storm was. Now, if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is actually seven, almost 700 feet, about 650 feet below sea level, okay? 
So it's, it's 650 below sea level. And listen to this. Less than 30 miles away is Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet above sea level. Okay? So within 30 miles, you have almost 10,000 feet elevation change. Okay? And what naturally happens, we know this now, what naturally happens, the, as the warm air from, the low, from down here mixes with the cold air, this is, this is the recipe for violent storms. And this was exactly what happens and still happens on the Sea of Galilee today. That this warm air combines with this cold air and wicked violent storms happen in an instant. They just stir up in an instant. So the disciples and Jesus, after his leading are caught up in the middle of this wicked storm. The wind was howling, the weight, and we're not talking about a great sea vessel, right? This is a a pretty small boat, and the waves are crashing, and they're coming over the side, and these expert fishermen know, they're scanning their circumstances, and they know, okay, we have minutes here, we're drowning, we can't bail water out fast enough, we're going down. They're freaking out. They knew they were going to sink and die. And this is where we get to see the, just the ironic twist in this story that makes it so remarkable. The boat is filling, the storm, the wave. Just think of this chaos. If you've ever watched Deadliest Catch, like if you've ever watched Deadliest Catch and you watch the boats get rocked by the waves and the sailors are just getting flopped all over the place. Think of that in your mind. And then look at Jesus. Verse 38, but he was in the stern, the stern is the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. Okay, now what in the world is going on here? First off, let me just say, for those of you who are like, this is just a fantasy, this is just a fairy tale, um, what's interesting to note is that we we have this uh, genre of fiction today called historical fiction, and if you read historical fiction... Um, they throw in a lot of useless details and they throw in a lot of things. Why? Because that's how, uh, when, when you're telling a story, if you were actually there, you have these useless details that you throw in. Like Jesus, he's asleep in the boat. He's asleep on the cushion, right? But what's interesting to note and what uh, literary scholars have noted is that the historical novel was not invented in the days of Jesus. So either, two things here, either this is an eyewitness account or the, the gospel writer of Mark just invented the historical novel, okay? Either he invented an entirely new brand of literature in this moment, or this is an actual eyewitness account. He's throwing in these useless details. And many people also say, well, you know what? I don't really know. Jesus was the Son of God. Maybe his disciples just invented this ru- rumor after he was dead. Now, if you were a disciple, right, and you're, rewri- you're going to edit and you're going to rewrite the ways and the works of Jesus and the life of Jesus. I don't know if you're going to write yourself into the story like this, right? You're telling your, son- your sons and your daughters about your life with Jesus. Very rarely do I tell my kids stories where I look like a complete idiot, right? When I'm telling him stories, I'm telling him stories of when I looked great as a young person, right? And these disciples here look, They look like absolute fools. Over and over and over, we see in the gospel accounts, they look like absolute fools. Why? Because this is an actual historical eyewitness account from the life of Peter written down by Mark. So we see Jesus here. While the storm is raging on the outside, Jesus is asleep. Now let me tell you, why is Jesus asleep? Jesus is exhausted. 
This is the dual picture we get to see of Jesus, that Jesus is at one time, he is the son of man. He is a human man. He is the weaknesses of a human man, but he's also the son of God. And he's 100% man and 100% God. He never co-mingles the two. And we see Jesus in his humanity after a day long of ministry and healing and preaching, he is absolutely exhausted and he's cashed out in the back of the boat. They're freaking out. The sailors are freaking out. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus, he's asleep in the back of the boat. And now, look what happens here. Let's keep reading. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, that's the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I was just struck this week by how similar. I'm thankful for the foolishness of the disciples because I was struck by how similar my own heart is to the heart of the disciples. When things in my life are not going the way I want them to. Let me just do a really simple example. I have four children who refuse to sleep. They refuse it. And I'm convinced that they all hate me. At least from 10 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning, they hate me and they hate my life. And every night when I get woken up and I have to preach or I have something going on in the morning, I say, God, do you not know? Are you asleep? What is going on right now? Are you not in control? Can you not? I'm going to give her NyQuil. I'm going to give her NyQuil. Do you not know that we are perishing? Now, that's a simple example. But we've had brothers killed. We've had children lost. We've had marriages break up. We've had... In this church in the past few years, we've had loss. And do we not, when, when things don't go our way, when our lives are not going how we think they should be planned out, when we are in a storm, do we not often cry out, Jesus, are you asleep? Do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that our life is getting torn apart at the seams? How often have we said the same thing of God? Look at my life. Look at my situation. Look at my circumstances. Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Can I ask you, when this situation, these types of situations come up, and for those of you who they haven't come up yet, look, listen to me, young people, because we do have a young church. They're coming. Suffering is promised. Storms are promised. They're either on the horizon, we're in one right now, they're in our past, or all three. Storms are coming. And if you don't have faith that can weather this type of storm, a soul-shaking, life-threatening storm, then you don't have faith at all. And when you're in the midst of a storm like that, what does your faith look like? Does it look like this? Is it marked more by fear? Is it marked more by things are out of my control? 
and an accusing God? Or does it look like a confident faith that trusts the master no matter what comes in our way? Can we stop for a moment and just think about these guys? Think about these apostles. You know they're doubting. This storm is causing them to doubt everything. Their fears are taking over. Listen, they've lost, they've left everything. They've left their businesses. They've left their family. They've left their old lives behind. They've placed all their money, like all their money's on Jesus here. All their bets are on Jesus. And now they're about to drown. Can you imagine what's going through their head? Oops. Right? All my money was on this guy. He was the savior of the world. And now we're going to get swallowed up by the sea. This, in this moment, it's an absolute crisis of faith for them. How can I make sense of this horrible situation? How could God let this happen? What is he doing? Jesus is asleep. He doesn't care. We're going down. That's their thoughts. Now, if you've never been here, if you've never had a crisis of faith like this, just wait because it's coming. It might be just around the corner. It might come on your deathbed. But storms big enough to cause you to doubt the greatness of God and the will of God for your life, these epic storms, they're written into your story. But they aren't there to destroy you. They're there to teach you how to strengthen your faith, to build your faith, to kind of follow a thread back to Jesus. Now listen, what do I mean by that? Many of us don't know how faith works. We think faith is either you have it or you don't, and there is some truth to that, that faith is a gift of God. It's given to us by the Spirit of God. But faith is like a muscle. It has to be worked in order to grow. It's not like a thermostat that you just set it and then you walk away from it and it doesn't matter what you go through, your faith just always stays at 70 degrees. That's not how faith works, right? Faith must be worked. It must, you, must con- you must trust and mature and grow in your faith. You must use it. Now, how do you do that? Now, let me give you a little story before I, I get into some things. Um, I've been reading this old, it's over 100 years old, it's an old fairy tale. Uh, I've been reading it to my kids at night for the past few months, and it's called The Princess and the Goblin, Goblin, and it's by George MacDonald. It's a great, it's a great story, it's long, it's one of the longest books I've ever worked through with my kids so far. You have to push through some, some uh, boring, boring spots if you're going to try to teach it to your kids, but it's a great book. And what happens in this book is it's a great fairy, fairy, st- fairy story. It's got a princess named Irene. And any good story, it's got to have some goblins in it, right? So it's got some goblins in it. And she's got, Irene's got this fairy godmother. And this fairy godmother, because she knows she lives in this kind of um, perilous time, a time that's got uh, goblins that are trying to get the princess, the fairy godmother does something really cool, and she gives her this special thread. It's a spool of thread. And this thread is invisible to everyone. Um, she can hardly even see it, but she can feel it, okay? And what fairy godmother, fairy grandmother, what her grandmother says to do is anytime you're afraid, anytime your fear overwhelms you, anytime you're in a situation where you need help and you can't get out of, I want you 
to take this thread and it's hooked to a ring. I want you to take the ring. I want you to put it under your finger, or under your finger, under your pillow, and then you're going to feel, feel that thread and you're going to follow that thread. No one else will be able to see it. You can hardly even see it, but you'll feel it. I want you to follow that thread and that thread, no matter where you are in the world, that thread will lead you back to grandmother and grandmother will keep you safe. Okay? This is kind of the story. Now, it plays out that the goblins attack the castle, right? The goblins are uh, trying to get her, and what she does, she follows the instructions of grandmother. She puts the ring under her pillow. She grabs hold of that string, and she follows it. Now, every time she's went to see her grandmother, she's went right up in the castle, just up a few flights of steps, and grandmother's right there. But for this reason, for some reason, the thread leads her out of the castle. Now, think about that. Every time I've, exp- I've met with grandmother, I've went upstairs, but this time, I'm, the thread is leading me outside the castle into more danger, it seems like. But she says, hey, I've got to trust grandmother. Grandmother told me it will lead me. I'm going to follow it. So she follows this thread along the path out of the castle, she, and it goes into this cave. Now, she's looking at this cave, and she's like, um, I'm trying to get away from trouble. I'm trying to get a- away from scary places, but my thread is leading me into the cave. It's leading me into this dark place I don't know anything about. So she has this kind of crisis. Should I follow it? Should I not? Well, I'm going to trust grandmother. She follows this thread into this cave. And then the thread goes into this pile of rocks. And she's looking at it. She's like, what is going on? And this is interesting. She tries to go backwards. She's going to change directions, and the thread disappears. She can't follow this thread backwards. It can only be followed forwards. So she gets down to these rocks, and then she says, well, I guess. And she starts moving the rocks and moving the rocks and moving the rocks. And she comes to find her best friend. His, his name is Curdy in the story. She comes to find her best friend that's been captured by the goblins and been hidden in this cave. And he says, how did you find me? And she says, I followed the thread that grandmother gave me. He's like, okay. He doesn't see anything, right? He looks around. He doesn't see a thread. He's like, okay. And she says, follow me. I'll get us out. And she goes deeper into the cave because that's where the thread's going. He's like, no, 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 no. I've been that way. There's nothing there. That's the wrong turn. Let's go out this way where the light is. She's like, no, I have to follow the thread. Convinces him. They follow the thread. They find their way out. Eventually, they find it follows it deeper into a cave, then eventually they follow it right up to grandmother. Now, what is this? Why would I tell this big story about the princess and the goblin? Because this thread is very similar to faith. It's very similar. That faith will lead us places that we don't, our minds would never go. Why is God leading me into this storm? It doesn't make sense. God should be leading me away from a storm, not into a storm. But what are we to do? We're to follow the thread, and that thread doesn't lead us back to some fairy godmother, thankfully. Our thread leads us back to Jesus Christ every time. When we're in a storm, when we're in a place where we don't understand what's going on, we're to follow this thread back to the source of our faith, Jesus Christ. Everything around us could be saying, turn around, go the other way. Everything around us could be saying, you're going to drown. This is going to be the end of you. But faith follows the thread back to Jesus Christ. Now listen, these disciples here, what are they doing? The thread has led them into the middle of a storm, and they're freaking out. They are completely baffled by the direction of the thread. Following Jesus took them to a place that they never wanted to go. 
And in this instant, this is probably the first time, the InterVarsity Press commentary said, for the first time, the disciples were confronted with the reality that following Jesus might actually cost them their lives. And they freak out. Sometimes following Jesus doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it doesn't lead us to the promotion. Sometimes it doesn't lead us to the bigger house and the nicer car. Sometimes it leads us into difficulty. Sometimes it leads us into storms. What, what, is, what happens here? Look at verse 39. And Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, this is crazy. Jesus speaks to the weather. He rebukes the weather, and he speaks to the sea. Peace, be still. Jesus speaks to the weather like he's already spoken to demonic powers. He literally says, sit down and shut up. I mean, I say that too when I get woken up out of a sleep, actually. (laughs) No. That's what Jesus does. He wakes up. He looks, Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? He looks at the wind. He looks at the waves. He says, stop, be still, and stay still. And whew. Now, this is crazy. Jesus is king. Not like Herod was king. He is king over all of creation. Jesus in the beginning was the word that spoke the winds and water into existence. And when he issues a command from the back of a wave-rocked boat, creation, boom, responds to his voice. Immediately, everything went still. Jesus is the king of creation. He's in absolute, he's absolute control of the situation. Now, for some of you who have this Jesus in your mind that he's just a really nice guy, he was a good moral teacher, taught us to love one another, be kind to one another, um, this should really bother you. Because you can't, be the lo- you can't be just a good moral teacher and say that you control the wind and the waves. And it's not just the wave, the wind just didn't stop and then the boat's gently rocking now. We're talking a sea of glass, bathtub water that you can look in and you can see your reflection on. The sea went perfectly still. Now, Jesus can't be a good teacher and claim to have done this because either this is a lie and he's off his rocker, right? He's either off his rocker or he actually is the son of God that creation responds to his voice. This is very interesting to me. It's fascinating. Jesus doesn't come out with a wand, right, and do some hocus-pocus incantation. He doesn't come out and he say, in the name of, right? Jesus wakes up and says, quit it. And Now, just think about this. I just love the reaction <laughs> that we get from here. Can I, can I we just pause and say, what was the other option? What could the disciples do? They could, bro- they could row harder, paddle faster. They could bail water, right? That's all, the only response they had was to double down on their own effort. Just work 
harder, bail faster. That's all they had. But Jesus has got real power. Think about this for whatever storm you're going through in your life. What can you really do to prevent the things that you fear from happening in your life? What can you do to prevent that? Work longer? If you work harder and longer and and, and you build up this mass of resources, will it create a buffer zone between you and suffering? Is that what you think? Can you scheme harder? Can you worry more? Right? Can you have your kids wear inflatable bubble suits so they never get hurt? But look what Jesus can do. Look what Jesus can do. All of creation responds to his voice. Jesus is great so we don't have to be in control. Look at verse 40, what happens. Jesus said to them, so there's this kind of double rebuke here. He first rebukes the waves and the wind and he causes them to cease. And then he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Okay, so we do, I want you to see this. This kind of juxtaposition that Jesus is doing between fear and faith. Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? Okay, many people think that doubt is the opposite of faith. It's not. Doubt is sometimes the greatest tool of faith because when I doubt something, it causes me to go back to scriptures, go back to some theology, study more, read, understand, answer the questions that I have in my own soul, and it actually deepens my faith. It actually strengthens my faith. But fear works on that same, the same level, the same wavelength as faith. He says, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? Have you still... No faith. It's the question Jesus asks. Jesus isn't okay with their fear. He doesn't come up and go, I know, it was a big storm. Gotcha. Right? He doesn't say everybody would be scared in this situation. It's totally human. It's totally normal. Don't worry about it. He rebukes them. He says, We've been building your faith for situations like this. Remember all the teaching. Remember my faithfulness in the past. Remember what I've done as I cast out demons and I've healed the sick. Remember everything I've done. Do you still not have faith? And many believers in this room, if you look back over your life and you see how God has been faithful and how he's come through, can we not say the same thing? He's not okay with their fear. He rebukes them for their lack of faith. Why? Because fear and faith operate on the same wavelength and the disciples had more faith in the storm than they did in the storm keeper. They had more faith in what was going on outside of the boat than they did in the man who was inside of the boat. You you see this over and over too. Fear and faith work on the same wavelength. We heard it in one of our professions today that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, there's, that fear and faith kind of work on the same level. And what we see here is that what is their response to Jesus doing this? They don't go, oh, do it again. Like just, you know, just, oh, he did a trick. Like a magician, right? Whoa, we, didn't, we love that. What is the disciples' response here? Right? What is their response? Look, look what they do. And they were filled with great fear. It's a different word for fear. It's actually the word for phobia. 
And they said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Right? This wasn't a cool parlor trick that Jesus performed and everybody went around him and go, oh, that was so neat. He did this and they went, oh. They were filled with a greater fear than they had of the storm previously. Their fear of the storm gets drowned by their fear of Jesus. Now, And I think many of us might be in this position. We might be scared of Jesus. What is this naked power this man possesses? Who is he and what will he do with this kind of power? If creation obeys his voice, then nothing is impossible with him. He wants to overthrow Rome. He could do it in a moment. If the winds and the waves listen to him, nothing is impossible for him. Now, can I ask you, if you had a little bit of that, right? If you had infinite power, if it was given to you, what would you do with it? Well, tricks like this might be a daily occurrence for me more than likely, if I had this kind of power, right? What would it look like for you if you had infinite power? There's an old saying that goes, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That great men are almost always bad men. Many of us, if we possess this kind of power, we would start by annihilating our enemies, killing those who threaten our way of life. But what does Jesus do? Jesus, the storm keeper. What does he do? The all-powerful king of the universe surrenders his power. Jesus shows us what it looks like to put all our trust in God, even in our darkest moments. Jesus, the one who controlled the wind and the waves, gave up that control and was the one who was thrown under the waves in the storm of God's wrath and perished in our place for our sins. Jesus is showing the disciples How do you build faith? How do you mature? How do you grow up? You follow me into the face of your greatest fear. And when Jesus wants to grow us up, when he wants to mature us, when he wants to build our faith, he takes the truths, listen to me, of the gospel and he presses them down deep into our heart and he does that through storms where we don't have the ability to trust in our self anymore. We don't have the ability to trust in the doctors, or we don't have our ability to trust in our job to provide for us, that we're in a situation that's out of our control, and now what are we going to do? Are we going to respond in fear, or are we going to respond in faith? And it's in these moments that it actually builds faith. We see the disciples here. When their lives take a detour, they take an unexpected turn. When they're following the thread, right? They're following it, but it goes in a direction that they're not willing, they don't want to go. They realize that following Jesus might, might cost me something. 
They don't understand what's going on. They think all hope is lost. And what do they say again? Jesus. Do you not care that we're perishing? How many of us have asked that question, felt that way? God, look, you turn on the news. God, look at our world. Do you not care? What is going on? Are you asleep? Now, I'm thankful for the disciples and their foolishness and their lack of faith because I resonate so much with it. But we have something the apostles didn't have in this moment. If you've ever asked that question, does Jesus care? How much does Jesus care? Let me answer that for you. Jesus was willing to surrender all of this magnificent kingly power and allow creation, the creation that responded to his voice, he gave it up and allowed that creation to crucify him, to allow that creation to drown him in a sense. Think about that. Jesus perished to eternally answer this question for us. How much does Jesus care? To death and back, that's how much. Jesus does not owe us anything else in this life. He could take away everything good that we have in this life and still be good because he gave us his very life. He gave us his spirit. He gave us eternal life. He promises that right now he's at the right hand of God renewing all of creation, including us, for one day to come back to a new heaven and earth reunited on this earth that's completely recreated with no sin and no shame and no darkness and no tears. The wind Think about this. How do I grow in faith? When you get in a moment like this, this is what I'm trying to do right now. When you get in a moment, in a situation where your fears press in, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that most of our problems in life come from listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. You see, the psalmist say to himself, Oh my soul, why are you downcast within me? Have faith in God. Trust in God. He's the hope of your salvation. What are the disciples doing in this moment? They're listening to their fears. They're listening to themselves. We're going to drown. We're going to die. This is going to be the end of us. God is not in control. How do you build up your faith? How do you grow in your faith? Not by listening to your fears. By speaking to yourself. Wait, 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 wait. Who's in the boat? The wind, think about this, work this through, press this down. This is how you, we say around here, gospel yourself. The wind and the sea listen to his voice. But think about this. But on the cross, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He received no reply. See, Jesus died. He was eternally drowned. He was eternally forsaken so that we could live, so that we could be rescued. Jesus swallowed our greatest fear, death. He swallowed it and he spits out eternal life. He gives us faith. 
J.R.R. Tolkien said that the resurrection of Jesus, this is a word he invented, he, he called it a eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe. What's he mean by that? It's a sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that simultaneously brings tears. So, A eucatastrophe is a moment when everything seems lost, everything seems dark, but, and that's Good Friday, right? Good Friday, crucifixion, all the the disciples walk away from him. Everything they thought is in confusion now, but the resurrection is the eucatastrophe. It's this sudden turn where they cry and they shout for joy at the same time, and that's what the resurrection is for us. Jesus' death was the most inhumane, catastrophic storm the world has ever witnessed. A truly innocent man killed by sinful people. God in the flesh condemned by sinful man. But the resurrection says, think about this, even that day, even that darkness has a turn. It works out still for the good of the world. So for us Christians, for those who are in this room that are Christians, if you understand the resurrection, you'll never fear another storm in your life because the greatest storm that has ever took place on this earth took place in the person of Christ. And what happened three days later was he was resurrected. The darkness of the storm was overcome by the light of the resurrection. There will be situations in our lives where our fears will almost drown us, where we must follow the thread of our faith back to Jesus and be reminded the darkest day in human history turned into the greatest day of human history. We won't understand what Jesus is doing. Why is he sleeping? Why won't he move? Why won't he help? Why won't he change things? When we find ourselves in these moments, we must follow the thread back to Jesus. Take one step forward, trust Jesus. Then take another step forward. Everything we fear in this life, Jesus experienced in himself. When we... we follow that thread back to Jesus, we're reminded, why do we suffer? Why do we go through difficult times? Why are we in the midst of the storm? It's not because Jesus doesn't care for us. It's not. He proved he cared for us by taking the wrath of God in our place on the cross. That we are sinners that deserve God's judgment. We are sinners who deserve the righteous judgment of God. And I know we don't like it, but that's hell. That's eternal separation from God. Our rebellion from God, that's the punishment. But Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, absorbed that wrath so that we could exchange his righteousness, we could give him our sin, and he could give us his righteousness by faith. This is the miraculous grace of God. This is the eucatastrophe that's changed everything for us. So if you find yourself this morning In a storm, follow the thread. Follow the thread of faith back to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Let me pray.
Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. We don't get to come to you on our own terms, that you are God, you are king, you are creator. And our wills must be broken. Would you do that not through just an epic show of power that creates fear and awe? But Father, we, would you change our wills? Would you bend or break our wills through the epic show of your weakness? That the things that we're afraid of you went through fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, fear of loss, fear of poverty, fear of death. Like you walked confidently through those, trusting the Father, never turning from his will, never turning from his way. And that you've given us the same faith Would you build that faith in us so that others could see us walking this life of faith and we respond differently to the storms of our life. We don't respond in anger lashing out at you. We don't respond in fear. We respond in faith, trusting you. That you're working all things out for the good of those who love God and are called according to your purpose. Father, as we come this morning and we take the bread and we drink of the cup, this reminds us of the great turn, the darkest day, the day the Son of God, the Christ, the sinless man was crucified in our place for our sins. And now we eat this meal, not just as a meal of remembrance, but we eat this as a meal of joy because this reminds us that the greatest thing that separates us from God, our sin, has been dealt with, and now in this life, we can live new. This meal reminds us that we have communion with the Father. We have relationship with God. We have been given faith by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this meal of faith. Would you nourish our bodies? Would you nourish our souls? Would you help us take these truths into our mind to believe them deep into our heart and then to cement our will? to put our face like flint towards the will of God and follow you wherever you lead us, Jesus. No matter if you lead us into dark caves, no matter if you lead us into storms, may we be men and women who follow you wherever you lead us. In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen.